0: O God, our Lord, your holy word indeed was long a hidden treasure. Till by your grace it it was by grace, uh, till to this place it was by grace restored in fullest measure. In fact, uh, we have that reminder for you on our Reformation banner on your left. And in uh, the name of our Lord Jesus, who by his grace has helped us put him back where he belongs in the middle of things, my dear friends. When you hear the the letters ABC, what comes to mind? Well, first three letters of the alphabet. If you're connected with the school world, as many of you are, you're thinking of teaching literacy and the little songs that you sing with kids uh, to help them remember their letters. ABC also is a convenient summary for the basics of everything. It's uh, it's uh, like shorthand for the fundamentals of something, like you know the ABCs of welding, for instance. Or if you're a big Motown fan, you might think of Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. ABC, one, two, three. Don't encourage me. I don't want to, I'm not going to sing any more for you this morning. Or you may not have been aware that it summarizes the mission statement of hell. Satan and his demons, you know, do have a mission statement too because they're a very well-run organization. Satan's mission statement is ABC, anything but Christ. Absolutely anything will do as long as it's not Christ in the middle. Everything else will rot out and corrupt a person's soul. So Satan works with whatever's handy, whatever wherever the herd wants to go. Back in Israelite times, you know, uh, Baal worship was an endless, constant threat to the people of Israel. They were intrigued by the fact that the Canaanites seemed to get what they wanted whenever they talked to Baal. And so they said, we want that too. And God, God's prophets furiously talked and cajoled and pleaded with, scolded, rebuked, and threatened the people of Israel what was in store for them if they let something else crowd out the promised Messiah from their hearts as their number one. Even the church-going Israelites, who faithfully attended all the sacrifices, could get distracted into letting the rituals and their performance of the rituals take the place of Christ because it became a matter of their doing and their performance not what it was supposed to represent. They got all into their sacrifice of animals and never grasped the fact that a substitute was dying for their sins. And so it became empty ritualism. That's fine with Satan, too. Or the fact that God wants obedience from his children. Is that not obvious? Of course he does! He gave you commandments, not ten interesting suggestions you might want to ponder. They're his iron laws with blessings and penalties attached, that he means business. But you can overdo the point of your obedience to God's word, where that becomes the center. And then you grade yourself, you evaluate yourself, am I a good woman, am I a good man, on the basis of your performance, and you seek to justify yourself. And that works for Satan just fine as well. That that was a big pull in the Middle Ages, in the the centuries of, let's say, the halfway point between Jesus' time and our time. The church leaders wanted some important things. First of all, they wanted obedience because you can't lead if people aren't willing to follow. So they needed the herd to get in line. And the church became an enormous organization and you need some structure and coherence, right? So they did what church leaders cannot resist doing. They cranked out more and more laws and demanded that people obey them. They also wanted to keep people nervous and worried so that they would need the church. So they elevated the pastors, the priests, way above common people and made them the priests who were the brokers of salvation. If you wanted a good relationship with God, you could not deal with God directly. You had to go through intermediaries. and They were very happy to offer themselves in that way and kept the people dependent on them in that way. You must go through a priest. They also wanted people to feel nervous about their eternal prospects and so gave them Lists after list of performance things that they could do to try to ease their conscience. You could go on pilgrimages. You could endow masses to be said for the dead. They invented the category of purgatory where even if you have uh, lived a Christian life, you're probably going to go suffer some more. So they set up a system and you get, there's, you could even say there was benign intent behind all this but they set up a system where people basically worked out their own salvation. And if you want to feel good about yourself, here's how what you must do. And that works for Satan just fine. Anything but Christ to move into the middle. And the world in which Martin Luther was born, in which he grew up, an eager believer who wanted so badly to live in peace with God and in peace with himself, wanted so badly to feel secure about that relationship, wanted so badly not to be afraid of death, found none of it. In the world in which he grew up, something ABC had come into the middle of the church world. And there was confusion both on the center of the message and the means by which that center was given its authority. More on that in a couple of weeks from now from me. But I want to talk to you about what is at the center. And I'd like to reflect with you on some words that Paul wrote in First Corinthians chapter 2 as we give thanks to the Lord for sending along a champion named Martin Luther to help get Christ back in the middle. You know, you can talk about Christ but never have him in the middle if you are confident of your own brain power to work things out in your head, or if you are confident and proud of your own righteousness, your own way in which you've lived your life, that you can justify yourself uh, and you think, I don't need a lawyer in God's court, I'll represent myself. If you think you have done enough, if your own treasury uh, and pile of good deeds outweighs your bad, if you work out in your own head system whereby it's a balance and as long as there's more good things that you've done than bad things you're good or you can always play the game of comparing yourself to somebody who's worse than you then you can live without fear and you can head into the judgment when you die um, confident of yourself except you will never be confident you will be always nervous because you're basing all of that weight on a rotten foundation that will crumble the minute you have to step on it before God and put your weight on it. Martin Luther was led by God's pure grace to discover that Christ had been slid out of his throne and was off on the margins. Paul realized that as well. The end of, this is such a brilliant essay, really chapters 1 and 2 go together and it, This is one of those frustrating moments where to pull a few verses out of the flow, out of the context, only gives you a pale little bit of the flavor. And let me encourage you, at your next available opportunity, to read all of chapters 1 and 2 together. uh, And read it slowly, because it's just so brilliant. Paul Paul was musing that both the pagan Greeks and the supposedly pious, um, Bible-believing Jews were were going in the wrong directions. They were they figured that they would gain their certainty and comfort and peace of mind, but they got it from the wrong things. The Greeks loved wisdom, and they were very proud of their philosophical tradition. In fact, the word philosophy comes from the Greeks. They made it up. They made up a word because they loved wisdom. Philo, p h i l. Um, means that you love something and Sophia actually means wisdom. So, philosophers are people who love wisdom and they love to think we can, we can work this out in our own heads. With study, with discussion, with reason, we can figure this out on our own and we'll figure out a way to immortality. We'll figure out how to live a confident, competent, joyful life. Paul said the, the Greeks love their wisdom and that's what they place their confidence in. And He said the Jews love signs. They're looking for power. And you know, I can, I find it hard to be mad at them for that because they were given so many of them. Imagine being an Israelite with your cultural history of the Red Sea splitting in half and allowing people to walk on dry land. How could that, how could that not be a way to validate and authenticate your national story. Their exodus had water splitting apart on both ends. They left Egypt with water splitting and they entered Canaan, the the promised land, with the Jordan River also having all the water piling up and a gigantic flood upstream until the nation of millions of people had walked across the Jordan River on dry land. They had stories of the pillar of cloud and fire going in front and, and uh, basically drowning the whole army, the chariot army of the, of the pharaohs. And you could just stack those up one after the other. They, and that's what they yearned for. That's what seemed to give legitimacy. But while they were busy looking for signs like when's the next one going to come, Satan thought, that works for me. Anything but Christ will do. ABC, one, two, 3. And so he let that slide in. And what happened is they lost the fact that their whole sacrificial system were pre, was, those were pre-examples uh, standing in for the reality. That those were dress rehearsals for Calvary and they didn't get it. And they missed the fact that their entire religious life was built around the death of an innocent victim who would received the blame for their sins and that the priests also existing temporarily speaking for Christ would announce God's mercy and love and forgiveness upon them. The need for those priests disappeared when the great high priest came. And so here's where our little paragraph begins. I'm going to take just a little slice out of this. When I came to you, brothers, says Paul, I didn't come with eloquence. Actually, he was exceptionally eloquent. But what he means is I didn't come with a worldly eloquence or using the principles of philosophy to argue you into the logic of faith. In fact, if anything, the Christian gospel message is illogical. And I'm just going to lay that right out there uh, without any apology whatsoever. It's illogical. It goes against reason in almost every respect. A God who is three in one simultaneously defies the laws of mathematics. Makes no sense. A God who is second person of the Trinity who is fully God and fully human simultaneously makes no sense. That he could function as both without diminishing his godness or without in some way making him a different kind of human being. He is fully human in order to represent you and me in the eyes of the law of God and represent you and me on Calvary, where he bled to death to give you life." Makes no sense. The fact that God pardons the guilty is so illogical it contradicts the fundamental principles of justice. That he would pardon the guilty and condemn the innocent is illogical. It makes no sense whatsoever. The fact that God would front you, his gospel forgiveness, The whole load gives you everything up front, is crazy. It's a terrible business move. You would never do that with employees of a business you were running. You would never do that. You would never front your employees a lifetime salary and plus a pension as they began their first day of work with you. That is an insane, irrational thought. And yet that's exactly what God does with you, trusting that you will respond to that immense treasure. That he gives you. So I didn't come with eloquence. There's no way I can argue you. I don't have superior wisdom meaning as my means of persuading you. The power to persuade comes from the gospel. It has its own power and it doesn't come from logic or reason. It comes simply because it's true and because God's power works through those human words as I proclaim to you the testimony, the witness about God. Now here's the main point right here. Here's like my, we're at the mountaintop now of this little talk with you. So if anybody around you is dozing or looking somewhere else, poke them because this is, the, this is it right now. Are you ready? Wait for it. Here it comes. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ And him crucified. That's in the middle. This is the dagger into the heart of Satan. This is the heel to crush the head of the serpent. Christ in the middle. Everything flows out of him. Anything but Christ, ABC, is an idol and will destroy you. Christ in the middle, and everything comes together. So it's not that he didn't have another thought in his head. Obviously, there were plenty of other thoughts in his head. This book that he wrote to them, 16 amazing chapters, which will bless you every time you decide to spend the time to read it. Maybe next to Romans, the most significant of all of the epistles, the letters in the New Testament. An outrageously challenging, inspiring, and helpful and informative uh, set of chapters. But Christ in the middle and you have everything. So it's not that he never had a different thought it's that I don't want anything else but Christ in the middle nothing but him and him crucified that too is so illogical how can a dead man do squat for you how can dying give you life it makes no sense whatsoever we like the stories of madame curie who uh, whose researches into radioactivity Uh, helped to usher in a modern medical age. We love that, where people in life do things. Living people do stuff for us. Dead people can't do anything for us, right? That is so illogical and counterintuitive, and yet that is at the heart. And it was given to a German monk who was tormented with doubts and fears to rediscover what had been lurking in the Bible all along, but which got neglected and slid off into uh, sideways and human works and performance had slid into its place. He was threatened with death and managed to live long enough to leave behind an exceptional body of writings, lectures, and basically transformed church life, in, first in Europe and then throughout the world. A gift of God to you and to me. Nothing in the middle but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. I was afraid to be talking to you. Corinth was a big city, probably the second largest city in the empire after Rome. It was the capital city of the eastern half of the empire, big, bustling port, wealthy, powerful, a port city with two ports really. Corinth sat on a narrow neck of land and had a port in either direction. Could either go out into the, uh, go a westward port and an eastward port because it sat in the pivoting right between the two halves of Greece. He said, I was kind of scared when I came. I, I was afraid for my life. I was afraid you would mock me and your, um, your philosophers would call me an idiot. And he was afraid of getting persecuted by the Jews who happened to live in town also. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Actually, they were plenty wise and plenty persuasive, but their wisdom and persuasion came because they had Christ at the center. Um, he, he said, we preach, just a few verses earlier, he had said, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block for Jews, and it's foolishness to Gentiles. And in fact, it's still foolish to our world today. Today, Uh, what Satan's working on in the world you and I live in today, his ABCs today, anything but Christ is, uh, he addicts people with stuff. We are living in the most affluent age ever. Nobody in the history of the world has ever had more stuff, more powers, powerful tools available to you. The information age we live in still amazes me every day. I still can't quite get over how big it is and how fast it all came together. We live in an age of safe transport. You can zip around the world in hours. That's insane. King Solomon with all his wealth could never do any of that stuff. You're you're wealthier and more powerful than Solomon himself. Isn't that crazy? And Satan addicts people with putting money in the middle and pursuit of my own self, my agenda, my comforts and he addicts us to ourselves. Or maybe he addicts us to science. People have this trust in science or even in a kind of a crude paganism. I was watching a public television show a little while ago uh, talking about some sea creature and it said, nature has seen to it that this, that this creature developed defensive strategies to be able to stay alive. This is science. Even, even a godless explanation of how our world came to be, leaving the creator God completely out of it, can't resist talking about the need to see design and intent behind the stunning complexity of our world. But that doesn't stop people. Love your mother, I saw a magazine ad, meaning earth. It's it's an encouragement to live an ecologically sensitive life. Love your mother. Earth is not your mother, but you do have a father. It's all working for Satan, but instead, today, thank God for the restoration of Christ crucified in the middle of everything. Thank them that that has somehow connected with you. At least I hope it's connected with you. Uh, you got a little work to do perhaps, if it hasn't yet, you need to evaluate these words and let the power of them go to work on your own heart. All of us are in a daily struggle with Satan as he's trying to tug Christ out of the middle and put other trash in the center. And look at your own life. What, what is Satan's ABC strategy for you? What does he throw at you and tempt you with to put in the middle as your number one thing? What gives you your self-confidence? Where do you go to feel self-confident? Do you look in the mirror? Do you trust in your looks? Do you try to charm people to get what you want? Do you trust in your wallet? Do you take great comfort in, the, uh, in your balance sheet, your personal uh, list of financial achievements? Is that where you find your confidence? What makes you feel good about heading into the judgment when you die? Do you even recognize that you're going to be evaluated for the way in which you've chosen to spend your life? Where do you find peace and contentment in your heart? Don't let Satan steal your treasure. He will try anything on you that works, as long as it's ABC. But instead, let Christ rule in your heart. Paul said, I, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on man's wisdom, but on God's power. Christ Jesus is the ultimate exercise of God's power. For there, all your worst nightmares and enemies have been put to death. Death itself has been put to death through Christ in that all your own physical death will do for you is usher you in to paradise more quickly. It has put to death the curse of sin over you. The disease you were born with cannot keep you out of heaven. The gospel gives you health. It changes your legal status from condemned to saved and it guarantees God's love for you, not based on your performance but based on grace. Through Christ. This is our dearest treasure. Thank you, Lord, for restoring it to us. Through the power of your spirit, the very power of the spirit that Paul just mentioned, may that now so grip your love, imagination, and desires that whatever idols might be in the middle of your life right now, broom them all away and put Christ back where he belongs. And let your joy and your confidence And what you know and want to think about, first and foremost, as you think about your life and your relationship to your God, is I, too, determined to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Amen.